You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. It's an odd thing to be able to describe a flavor as bittersweet. Because that really is kind of a strange testimony to how just exceptional and unique and wonderful our bodies are, that we could taste something that at the same time is two seemingly opposite things, something that is both bitter and sweet. And now maybe you're here and you enjoy things being bittersweet. I do not, in part because I don't like things that are bitter in general. And so when you take something that should be good, because I do enjoy things that are sweet, when you take something that should be good and delicious and then make it bitter and awful, very unpleasant experience, which is why I hate dark chocolate. Because you take a bite of dark chocolate and you think, oh, this is chocolate. And your brain gets excited because it's like chocolate. I know this. This is familiar. This brings me great joy and happiness. And then almost simultaneously, your brain goes, "Eh, what is that? Why does this chocolate taste like dirt? Because it's also bitter in the midst of it. But flavors aren't the only thing that can be described as bittersweet, right? There are seasons in our lives where we have events that are both good and bad that we look back on and we feel a fondness towards them because of the good things, but also a sense of of sorrow at times and loss because that thing is bittersweet. There's news that we can receive that's bittersweet, where it's both good and at the same time costly or bad, and it causes a unique feeling inside of us. And that's a little bit of what John receives at the end of Revelation chapter 10. And we looked at the first half of that passage last week, but where we left off, John gets a message from God. And he's supposed to take this scroll out of the hand of this angel, and he gets a weird commandment, but one that resonates with some Old Testament prophecies and things that happen. And John's instruction is to take the scroll and to eat it. And he says, when you eat this scroll, it's going to taste really good in your mouth. It's going to be sweet in your mouth like honey. But once it gets down into your stomach, it's going to turn sour. And this is a representation of the message that John was about to bring. God says, I'm going to give you this this vision. I'm going to give you this picture of what's to take place and what's to come. And it's going to be sweet on one hand, but it's also going to be something that's sour and bitter in your stomach because there's brokenness in the midst of the beauty. And that's the section of the book of Revelation that we're getting into now. As we see John begin to make these prophecies and describe these visions that he receives about the life and the history and the breath of the church of God and the world in which we live, but also we have the picture of hope that comes at the end. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be in some, we'll call them intense passages in the book of Revelation. Some that are very heavy on interpretation, some that are very heavy in their message and their meaning, but they're paving the way for what comes towards the later half of the book when we see the hope and the beauty of what Christ is doing in and through the world and how he's going to complete that one day by making all the brokenness in the world whole and all the sin and the shame and sorrow and taking it and putting it out of his good world. But today we're going to look at a vision that John receives. A vision of two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. And as we're going to see, these witnesses represent something so much bigger and teach us something important, not only about the nature of who God is, but who his people are as well. And so let's look at scripture today in Revelation chapter 11, 
verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power to over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell upon those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the great earthquake and the rest of them were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. I told you it's an intense one. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as we prepare to enter a section of the book of Revelation that can be incredibly difficult. God, imagery so great that's hard to understand, language that at times is even disturbing to us as we read it. God, help us to be faithful students of your word. Help us to read and interpret these difficult things to the best of our ability. Help us to see the truth of who you are and the power of the gospel within these words and these pages. But God, also help us to recognize who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do as we live and breathe and move in a world that desperately needs the gospel. And so we ask that you help us to see with eyes strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Help us to be okay with the things that we don't understand. Help us to rest in the mystery of the things that we can't fully know and to trust you in all things. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this is a doozy, right? This is heavy. This is intense. This is language that is really hard to wrestle with and understand. And I'm just going to tell you straight up that from the very beginning of going through the book of Revelation, when I was prepping through these sermons, I knew chapter 11 was coming. And with all of the, all the things that you have to interpret, all the things you have to look through, I feel fairly confident in what I believe to be, in my mind, the best understanding of most of the things taking place in this book. But this chapter has always been difficult. And so this is, this is a hard one to kind of grasp with and understand. 
And like a lot of the things that we see in the book of Revelation, it's heavily symbolic. We see all of these, these visions and pictures described to the best that we could understand them. But there's going to be some disagreements and some differences in the way people read a text like this. And so what I'm going to do before we get into the meat of the sermon, I want to present to you at least the foundation of what I believe to be the best understanding of what this passage is communicating, what these witnesses represent, who they are, and how that affects us. And then beyond that, we'll look at how that changes who we are. So everything that I'm going to preach on today hinges on an interpretation of this passage of Scripture. And it's a little different over the past 150 or so years in American pop theology. There's been a very specific system that teaches through Revelation that's kind of going through most of what people think about this book. And in that thought process, this, this passage is viewed very, for lack of a better word, literally with the belief that eventually somewhere down the road in a time they believe it's called the end times, that there would be two people prophesying throughout Israel, throughout Jerusalem about the coming of Christ and the destruction that's going to come and all that. And this is all taken very thought for thought, word for word to be a picture of what's going to take place around that. I don't think based on the rest of what we see in the book of Revelation, the style in which this book is written, the way that it's designed to be read and how imagery is used throughout this book, but also how God has chosen to work throughout the entirety of human history, I don't believe that's what John is trying to communicate in this vision. In fact, there's a lot of this vision that has a similar style and imagery to when we see Ezekiel talk about the, dry, the valley of dry bones in the later half of that book. A picture of a mighty army raising up to go out and to do the work of God. And so, in the closest thing to a chart that you will see throughout this entire book of Revelation, this study, I'm going to ask Alex to put up a couple things on the screen to give a breakdown of how I think we're meant to interpret what these two witnesses are all about. So here is the summary statement. This is sounding very lecturish, and that won't last for long. Just hang with me. The two witnesses in Revelation, based on everything that, that I see and understand inside of the book, are not meant to be seen as individual people, past, present, or future. And so we're not meant to look at this passage trying to guess and identify these people either throughout history or sometime deep in the future. But they're meant to be a representation of the church, serving as God's witnesses to the world as a kingdom of priests. Now, don't worry, I'm not just going to give you that sentence and just make you live with that and trust in that, because I think there are reasons to believe in that interpretation. So right here in the very beginning, we get this introduction to these witnesses that are going to come and do this work for God. And in verse 4, it said, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. So right there, we get some imagery that we're supposed to chase down. Now, if you've been here throughout the book of, the Rev book of Revelation as we've been studying this, the lampstand imagery should be fresh in your mind. Because we've seen that from the very beginning, from Revelation chapter 1. This idea and this picture of a lampstand is representative of the church throughout the book of Revelation. And it starts in John's letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book. But he expands this imagery a little bit, calling them olive branches and lampstands. And again, if you haven't been here, if this is your first time on a Sunday, then you'll hear this for the first time. If you've been here several weeks, then I've said this almost every week. The best interpretation tool that we have for the book of Revelation is not current events. It's not some sort of charts or ideas. It's the Old Testament. And this imagery pops up again in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. As Zechariah is given a picture in his book of, of the return of God's temple, of the rebuilding of God's temple. 
And just to see a little bit of how Zechariah uses this language, in chapter 4, verse 11 of the book of Zechariah, he says, what are these two olive trees at the right and left hand of the lampstand? So there you go. There's the imagery, olive trees and lampstands. And then a second time, I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees beside the two golden pipes which come out of the oil is poured? And he said to me, do you not know who these are? And I said, I do not, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And all through the book of Zechariah, we get this prophetic picture of the rebuilding of a temple. And the olive branches and the lampstands in the book of Zechariah represent a ruler who is going to be in charge of rebuilding the temple, much like we see with Nehemiah, who was sent to rebuild the second temple. And we also see this picture of someone who is going to come and be the worship leader inside of that temple and lead the people of God as a high priest, much like Ezra did when the people came back into the second temple through the later half of the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so when we look at this connection here, it should help us get at least an understanding that when Zechariah was talking about this royal leader to rebuild the temple and a high priest to rebuild the worship inside of the temple, that John is trying to communicate to us something about the nature of these two witnesses. And what we see here is that we are designed to be a kingdom of priests. There's a twofold nature in, in the life of the church. And we've already seen the book of Revelation describe the church as a kingdom of priests both governing, both ruling in and with and through Christ, and also worshiping God as priests living all over the earth, filling the world with his glory. There's a couple other things that help us with this too. On the next screen, it talks about the nature of witnesses. And so why are there two mentioned here? That's a very specific number. It's a number that hasn't come up in the entire book of Revelation. But there's an easy explanation for that. Scripture requires two witnesses to confirm a testimony. And so we see a picture of numerology here where we see the fullness of God's testimony is reliable through the witness of the church. And one other thing, we see this number coming up, and it's going to come up in chapter 11 and chapter 13 that kind of parallel each other in a way and help flesh out this idea. But this time of three and a half years or 1,260 days or time, time, and half a time is used to describe this is this number that represents, again, the, the time that, that the church is going to endure. It's not a, a literal exact three and a half years, not a future event down the road, but an ever-present reality for God's people until the return of Christ. And we'll see that validated a little bit in Revelation chapter 12 and in Revelation chapter 13, seeing more of an emphasis on this number as a big representation of things that are going on in the life of God's people. So that was a lot of stuff. That's the, probably the most minutia we'll dive into as we, at least for a little while. But I feel like that was an important thing for us to lay the foundation of, of how we're going to approach and attack this passage of scripture. And so if that's all the stuff, if that's all the details in the weeds, then what do we learn? from this passage of scripture. If these two witnesses represent the church of God as God's witnesses all over the world, what does that teach us about who we are? Well, the first thing we see in this passage is that God knows his people. And this is something that, that we should know, at least in theory, but it's something I think that we take for granted far too often. And when you look through the Old Testament prophecy and even into the New Testament, there was a centrality about the temple. The temple was the focus of prophecy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's where Ezekiel's visions begin. That's where, as we were singing that song from the book of Isaiah, that's where Isaiah's picture begins in the throne room of God and the representation of the temple of God. Even Jesus himself, 
when he was prophesying about his death and his resurrection, used the imagery of the temple saying, you can tear it down and I'm going to build it right back up. And so here, this vision to John is, is in the same line. He's given a measuring rod and he's told to measure the temple. Now, chances are at this time, the, there's a couple ideas about when the book of Revelation was written. It was either before 70 AD or somewhere around 90, 92 AD. And the later date seems to be more reliable. And by that point, the problem with the temple is it was gone. The temple was destroyed in the year 70 by Roman occupation over Jerusalem. They wiped the temple out completely. And so if John was seeing this vision somewhere down the road, he couldn't actually just stroll out and start measuring the temple. And so what we see here is a picture of John being told to measure the temple of God in a spiritual fashion. And in the same way that Ezekiel was told the measurements in Ezekiel chapter 40 and 41, John is told to do the same thing. But in this instance, John is told to measure not just the altar, but also the people who worship there. He's told to get a, a, a rundown of who they are and how they function and how they live. And so what we see here with this idea of measuring is it's a picture of God wanting the details of his people. And this is a reminder that this is how God knows his church, down to every minute detail of who we are. And even in our suffering, I think that's important here because he says this idea of, of being trampled on in the city and the fact that these witnesses are going to prophesy in sackcloth is a reminder that God knows not only the good things that happen in our lives, but also the struggling and the difficulty that we endure, that God knows us inside and out. And so often it's easy to feel distance from God. Sometimes it's easy to feel a lack of connection with God, not only individually, but sometimes as a church. Sometimes entire churches can feel like God is distant or somewhere off away from us or that we don't have a deep connection with God. But as we look through this passage in the book of Revelation, as God wants to know his people so intimately and so thoroughly, the book of Revelation screams to the contrary that no, God knows his people, loves his people, and is invested in his people. We have this reminder all through the book and all through scripture in general that God has created his people, that he loves him, that he serves them, that he saves them, that he seals them, that God hears us when we cry, that even when we look at the martyrs in Revelation chapter 10, that we see that God avenges them, that God measures and knows his people, that God measures and knows each and every one of us. We're told in scripture that we have a God who knows us better than anyone, who counts the hairs on our head, who loved us before we loved him, a God who never leaves us or forsakes us. And so this is a God that is worth trusting, a God that's worth loving and worshiping in all times and in all seasons of our lives because he knows us, he cares for us, he loves us, and he never walks away from us, even in the midst of great difficulty. But not only do we learn about God and the fact that he knows his people, but we also learn about the people of God and who we are. And as we look through this passage, we realize that God's people carry prophetic power. God's people, the church of God carries prophetic power. Think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This passage comes to us after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's been walking around with his disciples for over 40 days, and then it's time for Jesus to leave the church to do their work. 
And he gives a final commission, a final commandment to the church saying, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, in good evangelical Baptist churches like we are, there's always an emphasis on the mission there. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention, the entire mission strategy of our denomination is based on this passage of scripture, starting local where you are, reaching out from there, and not being satisfied until you reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. And so we focus a lot on the mission, but I think sometimes we neglect the power that fuels that mission. Because Jesus says, you're going to receive power to do this to be the witnesses of God, to be those who pursue after Christ, to be those who are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. We need the power of Christ working in and through us. And Jesus says, that's exactly what's going to happen. And in chapter 11, verse 3 of Revelation, we see similar language. God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, or I will grant authority to my church, and they will prophesy. So often, the way that we do church doesn't really reflect the way that scripture tells us church is supposed to exist. So often we set up and we design our churches to be so many different things. And the problem is if we have a church that conducts itself like a social club or a church that conducts itself like a special interest group or a political awareness group, if we have churches that structure themselves to simply be theological or religious academies or entertainment factories, those kind of churches are never going to have the kind of power that's meant for the church to have. Because that's not who we're meant to be. We're not meant to be any of those things. But we're meant to be a kingdom of priests a twofold witness to who God is. But too often we don't live like the church has power. Too often we don't gather together like we believe the church has power. We don't worship and sing songs and pray like we believe the church has power. We don't speak or serve or witness like the church has power because we've turned church into something that it was never meant to be. But we're reminded here in this passage of scripture that we've been given a season that we've been given a time and a space in which we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. As Zach said earlier, we're called to be the ambassadors of Christ in the world. That we're called to wield prophetic power in our world by proclaiming the gospel with boldness, by telling the world around us that there is a God who not only created the universe, but loves each and every one of us so much that in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of all that we've done, that he loves us unconditionally and intimately. And he proved it in the most profound way possible by sending his own son to stand in our place, to take on our sin and shame and to die so that we could have forgiveness and then raise again so that we could have new life. We have this season to be the hands and feet. If we believe in a God who heals the broken and the sick and those who are in need, that it's our job to go out and to participate in that and to believe that where we go, the Holy Spirit is working in and through us to bring healing, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That we have the calling to constantly declare the power of the gospel all under the protection and the authority of God. In verse 5 and 6, we see a pretty horrific picture of these witnesses. 
It says, if anyone harms them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. And they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth and every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is a picture of some pretty horrifying language, but it's a reminder of the power that's put inside of the church for the purpose of bringing God's glory into the world. Jesus said, if you have faith, just like a mustard seed, then you can look at a mountain and say, get up and go into the sea. But we believe that there is a limit to our faith and what our faith can do. But we need to learn differently. And I wonder what would happen if we started believing even some of what the Bible says about the church. Even some of what the Bible says about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and what Christ can do working in and through his church. I wonder what would happen if we stopped believing that the book of Acts was something that happened once somewhere far off in the distance and recognized that the same power that worked through the prophets of the Old Testament, that worked through the church in the New Testament is working in and through us today and have the boldness to step out and believe that when we go and when we speak and when we pray and when we love and when we serve, that it's not based on our power power, our limitations, but on the power of the limitless God working in and through us. I think this is something we should find out. And why not start here? Why not start at Redeeming Grace Community Church looking at scripture and asking God to give us the boldness to really genuinely be the hands and feet of Christ and to wield that prophetic power well, proclaiming the gospel, caring for those in need, standing up for the broken and for the oppressed, speaking truth to power when necessary and standing willing to take any consequences necessary for the cause of Christ and for those that he's called us to love and to serve. And I feel with great assurance that if we could get past our own minds and our own limitations, that we would see God doing something in not only our own lives, but in the life of our church, in the life of our community, in the life of our world that we've never seen before. But we've got to start believing that God's people carry within us prophetic power given to us by the Spirit of God. But we also see the other side of this, that God's people will suffer for their testimony. And we've talked about this a lot because we've seen this constant theme of, of tribulation and persecution and hardship in the life of God's people all throughout the book. But in verse 4 and 5, we see this really overwhelming picture of what's happening there. But he says, if anyone would harm them, then fire pours out of their mouth and all that stuff kind of ensues. But it doesn't say they're unable to be harmed. There's not an invincibility here. And we've already seen in the book of Revelation these martyrs around the throne of God, men and women and children who have given their life for the cause of Christ. And yes, there's a promise that one day God is going to avenge that, that one day God is going to take care of that, but there's also a promise that God is going to continue to allow that number to grow as people give their lives for the cause of Christ. And chapter 11 even takes it to that step. In verse 7, it says, When they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, here's one of those passages that I think is going to be made a little more clear when we get to Revelation chapter 13. And we see the other side of this coin, a parallel story that talks about the forces waging against Christ and his church, and we get to see things from that perspective. But here in this passage, we see something that feels like defeat in the life of God's people. 
And then it continues in verse 8 through 10. Not only are these witnesses killed in this picture, but also their death is celebrated. It says that people give presents. That's weird. People are exchanging presents because of the loss and the defeat here, representing that celebration, feeling like the church has lost its power. And we live in a weird paradox where if you're a follower of Christ, we believe that the ultimate war, so to speak, to use that language, has been won by Jesus. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, that he's conquered sin, that he's conquered shame and guilt, that he's conquered all the powers of darkness, that he has conquered even death itself. And we all hold on to the hope of that victory, but we haven't received it in full yet. And so there are times in our lives when it seems like the kingdoms of the world, spiritual and otherwise, have their moments and have their seasons where the church seems to have lost her way and her power and is taking defeat after defeat. And sometimes that's entire seasons. When we look back on the history of the church where the church has gone dark, where the church has gone quiet, where the church has forgotten who we are. Sometimes that feels like just an up and down, I think especially here and now. Where it feels like some seasons everything's going well, some seasons everything is going really poorly. And as we look over the world, we remember that there's some Christians who feel like they're thriving and everything is going well and there's comfort and there's peace. And then on the other side of the world, there are Christians enduring great hardship, tribulation, imprisonment, and death. But either way, this can feel really defeating as we try to bring light to a dark and broken world, as we try to share the gospel with a world filled with violence and hatred but it isn't the end of the story because this passage continues and it reminds us that not only do God's people carry prophetic power, not only will they suffer for their testimony, but also we have this hope that God's people will rise again. And again, throwing back to the Old Testament, when we look at Genesis chapter two, we see this picture of God creating humanity. He sculpts them from dirt and then he breathes life into his people. And we see all through the Bible that God is not only a creator off in the distance, but he is an intimate, good father who loves his creation and gives us life and sustains our life. And the very breath in our lungs is the breath that belongs to God. And so John uses that imagery here in verse 11. He says, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And I love the picture of that number. Again, these numbers, just there's a lot of them. But he was talking about this time of their prophesying, this time of the suffering and sackcloth and all that stuff. And it was three and a half years. That's a big number. But now the time of their defeat, it's it's very small. Three and a half days. And this goes back to that picture where John says that I count my suffering, even a lifelong suffering, excuse me, that Paul endured. He says, I count all of my sufferings as so small in compared to the eternity that I have in knowing Christ Jesus. And here we see this, this message of hope, the bittersweetness coming in, because we're reminded of the power of the resurrection and the life of those who follow after Christ, both spiritual and physical. It begins with salvation. We trust in Jesus for salvation. The Bible says that our spirits are dead inside of us because of our sin and because of our brokenness. And yet the very first thing that God does for us as we trust in Christ is that he takes our dead and broken spirits and the God who loves us with an immeasurable love, with the riches of his love and his great kindness, he makes us alive spiritually in Christ and sets us free so that we can follow after him. But we also have the promise of physical resurrection. 
Because again, we're not worried about spoiling the ending here. That's how the book ends. In Revelation 20 and 21, we see this picture of Christ coming again and making his world into what it's supposed to be. Taking all the brokenness and making it whole. Taking all of the sickness and wiping it away. Taking death and replacing it with life. Taking all of our sin and separating it from us once and for all so that we can stand full and whole and resurrected body, soul, mind, and spirit in the presence of God. And this isn't simply borrowed authority that God gives us for a season, but this is the breath of God raising his church to life once and for all. And when we put these pieces together, recognizing the prophetic power of the church and also joining that together with the hope of the resurrection that we have in Jesus, we have an unstoppable force for gospel love and proclamation. N.T. Wright says that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, the hope that he gives us, he takes away the tyrant's last weapon. That the final thing that could happen to someone proclaiming the gospel is that we could lose our lives for the cause of Christ. And even then, we don't lose our hope because we have the promise of life after death and life after life after death as Jesus makes everything right and everything new. And so to quote an old hymn, why should we fear? We don't have to fear for our reputations because our identity is firm and fixed in Christ. We don't have to fear for our our health or our well-being because we have a God who is with us when we are healthy and when we're sick, when we're rich and when we're poor and everywhere in between. And Christ is going to do all things in and through us because we can endure all of that through Christ who gives us strength. And even when we breathe our last breath, it's not the end of our story. Because we have the promise that if you're in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ and that one day he's going to return to put all of this back together. And so we can live our lives with a trustful abandon, not reckless, not fearful, but trusting that if we give everything for the cause of Christ, that we are going to receive even more on the other side of resurrection. And so we have a call to boldly do the work of Christ. As I've already said many times today, that starts with proclaiming the gospel, with telling a world in need that the God of the universe loves them and cares for them and has provided a way to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. We could never be good enough to earn God's favor. We could never check off enough boxes to earn God's favor. But Jesus checked all those things for us, and all we have to do is trust in Christ and follow after Christ. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus before, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And if you feel far from God, if you feel like you're too bad for God to ever save, the goodness of God is so much greater than the worst thing you could ever imagine doing. And all we have to do is trust in Christ. And he gives us not just new life, not just forgiveness, but eternal life with him. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've ever been baptized, please don't leave here this morning without talking to me. And so we can talk about what it means to go through that beautiful picture of God saving us. But we also have the responsibility to to be the hands and feet of Christ. It's not just about speaking the gospel, but it's about living the gospel in every moment of our lives to recognize that we have been given power to do far beyond what we can imagine. Jesus charged the disciples saying, you're going to go and do even greater things than I did because the spirit is going to be working in and through you. And so that's our mission to go everywhere that God leads us here and abroad to the ends of the world. If God calls us to loving our neighbors as ourselves, caring for those in need, speaking for those who have no voice, 
loving people that feel at times unlovable, being Christ in a lost and broken world. And it's a big mission. It's a big world. But we have a bigger God. And it's that God that is working in us, through us, and for us. And even if this mission runs us ragged, takes everything away from us, and even costs us our lives, we will receive something far greater as we get to enter once and for all into the fullness of the kingdom of God and be with Jesus forever. And so just like we believe that we have a God who knows his people, let's be a people who knows our God and trusts in his power, works in and through his power, and declares a boldness, the goodness of Jesus and the power of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that you are so big and so good that you can even speak through the things that are difficult to understand. God, help us to see with your eyes. God, teach us through your spirit what we should know. And God, remind us of the power that you've given us to be your kingdom in the world, to be your priest drawing attention to your throne and the power of your son. God, forgive us for the times when we forget who you are. And because of that, forget what you've called us to do. Forgive us for the times when we think we have to do it on our own. But God, help us to believe fully in who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. And help us to go out and to fulfill the mission of Jesus with boldness, with confidence, and with hope. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.